Hello, everyone. Uh, my next guest is an award-winning occupational therapy lecturer working in the area of adolescent health. She has been transforming the lives of young people in acute psychiatric units. With two degrees and a postgrad diploma from Trinity and a PhD from UCC, she has consulted for the National Youth Council of Ireland. She has spoken at over 40 conferences and she has over 15 research papers published. She is rapidly applying her research on adolescent well-being to public health models to allow for higher quality of life for future generations. In doing so, she has created Mind Me, Mind You, which educates parents on how to take care of their children's well-being and everyday matters for secondary school and UCC students. You are most welcome, Dr. Edna Hunt. How are you? Thank you very much. It's a luxury to pursue what makes you happy. It's a moral obligation to pursue what you find meaningful. And that doesn't mean it's easy. It might require sacrifice. When perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. Spread the word on mental health so when other people are in this position in the future, they know where to go and they know what to do because there's a blueprint. I think everybody's stuck in the same cycle of looking at how we need to throw money, more money at mental illness and the problem will go away. But it's the incorrect way to look at it. So you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Understanding how our mind works, how our emotions work, can help us understand how to get more satisfaction in life. Um, so my first question should probably be how have you achieved so much but um, some of our listeners might be asking why we have an occupational therapist on a mental health podcast uh, so could you please just explain the relationship between occupational therapy and mental health as some might not know sure um, it's a question that we frequently get occupational therapy is a profession that is all about helping people achieve what they need want um, and have to do in their day-to-day -day life we take the word occupation to mean everything that somebody does across the full 24 hours of their day. So sometimes people think occupation relates to paid employment. Yeah. But for us as occupational therapists, it's everything that we do in our lives. Okay. And people experience difficulties in doing the things that they need, want and have to do for a range of reasons. Oftentimes as well, people think of occupational therapy in terms of physical health difficulties. Yeah. Perhaps a hip replacement or a head injury or somebody who has um, maybe had a limb amputated. But there's a very rich tradition of occupational therapy within mental health settings. In fact, it's the mental health um, heritage of occupational therapy that's the most rich. Occupational therapy is about 100 years old now. And the social movements at the time, at the late, 18, late 1800s, um, which were really when asylum treatment for people with mental health difficulties were at their most strong. Um, the humanitarian, more humane approaches to supporting people with mental illness became more popular at the time. And the moral treatment era, the settlement house movement, the arts and crafts movement, all of these contributed to the establishment of occupational therapy very much within a mental health space. And has there been much progress in the field or? Oh, for sure. Occupational therapy is a very well respected and very established um, health profession now. Um, 
it's a very diverse and a very broad profession. So occupational therapists work with people um, from pre-birth, pre premature birth babies, um, premature babies up in the neonatal unit um, to the very oldest old and um, working with people with both physical health challenges, mental health difficulties, but also working with people who, for reasons much beyond health or disability, are experiencing challenges in their everyday living. So that might be people who are homeless, people who are um, asylum seekers, people in prison. Um, so it's not just looking at supporting people with illness or disability. We take a much broader view. Okay, and in relation to your specific research interest, what exactly would that be in relation to that? So my clinical background is in mental health. Um, I worked in an acute inpatient hospital unit uh, initially when I graduated and then worked in community child and adolescent mental health. So I've carried that interest with me through my academic uh, career. So I'm interested in, I guess my clinical career was working with young people who were experiencing mental health difficulties. I'm very interested now in how we can support young people to be as well as possible and to hopefully prevent them from experiencing mental health difficulties. So taking a much more preventative health promotion lens to supporting young people. Okay. And any in particular now um, of the research you've done so far, what is helpful for uh, children and adolescents' um, well-being at the moment? Sorry, I know that's a big question. That's a very big question. <laughs> Um, something that I'm particularly interested in at the moment is um, sleep okay. and um, educating young people and families and um, those who work with young people, so teachers or health professionals, on the science of sleep okay. and how we can prioritize sleep. Because I think we oftentimes when we're busy, all of us are very busy, including young people, Sleep can be the thing that we feel we can prioritize less. Yeah. But the science of sleep that has really exploded in the last number of years is absolutely fascinating. And I feel that we, we have a responsibility to bring that information to young people and families to support them to be as well as possible. And sleep is a very, very specific and concrete area that we can target. Do you think we're getting better? Has this generation of young people, do they have better well-being than before or worse? Do you think? I think we've made some significant progress in um, creating an environment where young people are better able to talk about their feelings and their emotional well-being, um, which is very positive. Yeah. Um, I think the flip side of that is there's a risk that we have pathologized everyday emotional experiences um, whereby I think young people perhaps feel that when they have a day where they're not feeling as positive about the world or if they're feeling anxious, they become frightened by that and feel that that's a problem. I think we need to really support young people and families to realize that um, we all have ups and downs, that that's a normal part of everyday life. 
and give young people a vocabulary for their emotional experiences, but also the message that it's okay to feel what you feel. Right. Um, so, so, sorry to interrupt, you're almost saying as if there is an emotional reaction to when somebody can identify an emotion, such as if they're worrying now because they have some exposure to an education of it, they're nearly worrying about their worry then. Is that kind of what you're saying or did I, I, I misread that? I think there's a, a risk um, and that we really need to help young people understand that when we say it's okay not to feel okay, um, that's a very important message. Yeah. But we really need to help unders- people understand that we all feel, we all have days where we don't feel okay. Yeah. And that that's not a sign of weakness. That's not a sign of ill health. Um, that that is normal human experience. Mm. And to keep a realistic perspective on the everyday ups and downs. And we need to help young people and families differentiate between what is a normal reaction to the challenges of everyday life, be that busy schedules, exams, studying, friendship, challenges, or what's a more significant issue that may require more professional support. So how we can help young people and families to to understand that spectrum, really, um, of experiences. Okay. And um, going back to what you mentioned earlier then about sleep, um, do you think there's um, a strong correlation then between lack of awareness of the importance of sleep and mental health issues? Undoubtedly. Okay. Um, we, we really need to support young people to understand that if they are not getting the right quantity and quality of sleep, their capacity to regulate their emotions, to learn, um, to their physical health, how they manage their eating and their appetite, everything is undermined. Okay. Um, Particularly with the stage of sleep that happens late in the night, um, when that is disrupted, a lot of the capacity to regulate emotions is really impaired. Okay. Could you go into a bit bit more into that? So what you're saying is the late stage of sleep, when you don't get enough of it, your ability to regulate your emotions uh, decreases, is it? Yeah. So there's different phases and stages of sleep. um, And what's particularly challenging for young people is that their sleep onset happens later in the day. So naturally for adolescents, melatonin is released later on okay. and their natural tendency to feel tired and feel sleepy is delayed by up to about two hours. So this means that um, young people biologically may not feel sleepy or, or want to go to bed until maybe 11 or 12. Mm. But there's a phrase coined now called social jet lag, okay. whereby that may be our, our natural biological um, process. But society and our obligations, be they school or work, mean that young people probably for school day have to get up at seven o'clock. So there's this mismatch between the biological need, which would 
if they were to naturally create their own schedule, they would go to bed later and get up later. Okay. So they're missing out on this last phase of sleep um, in many cases, which it's now known is, is um, relates to how emotions are regulated. Okay. So the research would indicate then possibly that the school timetable should be pushed forward then to a later start. Yeah. So there's a... There's a, a strong drive toward that, particularly in the United States, okay. where some states are passing legislation to mandate um, later start times. Now, culturally, in America, the school day is earlier anyway than, than in Ireland. And with school buses um, and the school system, the school transport system in the States, young people often have to get be out for their school bus at something like 6.30 in the morning. Yeah. Um, here in Ireland, school start times maybe between eight thirty and nine, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly a conversation that is happening much more often. Okay. Um, now it's a very significant challenge because, obviously, you know, parents have to get to work and there's other children yeah. who need to be accommodated. So there's no easy solution. Um, but I think, w- you know, there's an urgent need to consider sleep and protecting sleep amongst young people okay and um so this um you're talking about sleep this ov- obviously ties in with uh, routine which i've come across you've talked about quite a bit why is routine important for adolescents i think routine is important for all of us okay um i think we operate best with a degree of predictability in our lives um We can't control for everything. So, of course, we need predictability to a degree. But for us all, we also need to balance that with retaining some capacity for flexibility and dealing with issues that may present. But for the most part, we all benefit from routine. Um, I think, and structure and habits. And I think when we are clear in our mind about what it is that we need, want and have to do in our day to day life and when we can plan for that and follow through on that, it takes less mental energy than I suppose not having a routine and not having a clear plan. But also what I'm incorporating more into to my own work with young people at the moment is the sense of trying to build habits Um, so we think about habits and routines but habits are very interesting because ideally if we create habits that are supportive of our health and well-being these operate then outside of willpower Um, so the goal is to try and identify and implement habits that are then automatic. What age group would you be targeting for that? I think it's never too soon. Um, I have a 10-year-old son, okay. and only this morning in the car, um, we, we slept it in a little bit this morning, and I said, today I helped you. I put your bottles and your book into your bag because we were running a bit late. But I said to him, you know why I don't like doing that? And he said, yeah, habits, habits. <laughs> um, so executive function amongst young people is a really important capacity and I think 
we need to support young people to develop that capacity as early as possible, but doing it in a developmentally appropriate way. Right. So helping young people to be responsible for their belongings, for their um, their clothes and thinking about, well, what what's happening on the next day? What do I need to put in place for that? And incrementalizing that um, in a graded way so that young people feel that they're developing these capacities to, to self-regulate um, and to have these these planning capacities and habits. Yeah. And moving away from school. Now, you mentioned about executive functioning and preparing for school, for example. Um, let's refer maybe specifically to summer holidays. What type of habits could you develop in that timing when school isn't um, in the um, in the child's life at that moment? Mm-hmm. Is there any specific habits? Sorry to put you on the spot. I guess I'm not sure if anything specific comes to mind. Um, I think trying to hold on to a degree of structure is important. Okay. Um, so what can happen during holiday times, for example, is sleep can go um, be very disrupted. So um, maybe later going to bed and later getting up, which may offer benefits to the more teenager more teenage age group um i think trying to plan ahead and make decisions for right well what would we like to get done today yeah um so i guess really just yeah taking taking a step back and thinking about okay you know what would i like to do for this week maybe or or this day and just helping have one or two goals for a day or for an overall week and that doesn't have to be full-on activity you know that can be i think for holiday time and again i think it's a real struggle and i can really relate to this as a working parent um you know we rely more on structured um learning during summer holidays or other holidays in terms of camps and everything but in as much as it's possible to hold on to opportunities for peop- young people of all ages, primary, secondary school, whatever, to have free time. Okay. And free time where they they are responsible for filling that time. Okay. Is important. So you give them complete independence in that situation or well, again, in an age appropriate and a safe mm. safe way, but that that as the adults or the guardians or the caregivers that it's not always our responsibility to fill their time yep that we allow them the space to go okay well this afternoon we're just going to hang around at home okay and you know because this also ties in then with this obvious problem at the moment of this overparenting um, of basically the parent needing to completely structure their child's uh, life essentially to make sure that they're protected from the dangers of the outside world, which of course is a problem in itself. Um, and then in relation to um, when we were talking about the summer holidays, so some um, school or some school systems in different countries they have different um, opinions on how much time off children get in the summer. So, for example, I know um, the Chinese school system, they only get uh, one month summer holiday, while um, in the UK, for example, in primary school, they finish in July as opposed to June here in Ireland. Um, do you think more time in school is better then? 
I think it's a very complicated issue. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm not immediately involved in educational provision in Ireland. Um, more time, it depends, I guess. What, what would what would that time be spent doing? Yeah. Um, I would love to see, you know, less emphasis within school on, or maybe not less emphasis, but more emphasis on play and physical activity. So if we were, if we had more time and there was more time to do those type of things or looking at other opportunities for social and emotional learning and development, that's great. But I also think, you know, s children, they need the downtime as well. Yeah. Um, so it's very difficult. And then, you know, the long holidays are a significant challenge for parents who are working outside the home. So um, I can see, see these things from many different angles. And okay. I, I don't have any, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not aware of the correct view. I yeah. think it's depends the lens through which we look at it okay um and so now i'm going to speak a bit about um what you set up mind me mind you i for a time i thought i may pursue private practice as an occupational therapist um and i set up mind me mind you as a vehicle for that okay. um because my research activity in the university here is is more active now i'm not in a position to to progress the private practice so mind me mind you i guess exists as uh, a vehicle for me to communicate some of my thoughts and activities and outputs um, in i guess particularly via social media channels um dr yvonne nolan my colleague and friend and i do collaborate um, okay on different initiatives and we're involved in some research grants together. One specific activity that we have developed is um, delivering what we had called Older and Wiser, um, which is an educational um, outreach activity for schools and um, parents, which um, we really combine our expertise. So Yvonne is a neuroscientist and she um, provides the overview of the developing brain in childhood and adolescence. Okay. And I come in then with my occupational science, occupational therapy perspective on how we can translate some of that really important um, information into everyday activities and, and routines and habits um, supporting young people. Okay. Um, and then you also train mindfulness in schools. Am I correct in saying that, or is that part of the program? Um, I, so I have completed training um, through the Mindfulness in Schools project, which is a UK-based organisation. So they have developed two different um, mindfulness trainings, one for primary age children, which is called Pause B, and for a secondary school type age range, it's called Dot B. So I've done both of those trainings and I've just completed the training to be certified to deliver mindfulness based stress reduction 
for teenagers. So that's an adaptation. Congratulations. Of, thank you. That's an adaptation of the um, internationally recognized eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program for adults developed by John Kabat-Zinn. So this is the teen version developed by Gina Beagle in the States. Okay. And can you explain some of the benefits of um, children being taught mindfulness in schools? Um, the benefits are manifold. Um, I think in the first instance, I believe there's a distinct benefit in educating young people, giving them a vocabulary for their emotional experience giving them the message that all of their feelings are okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be cross. Um, it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be worried. Um, but then giving them skills for how to um, work through those emotions. Mindfulness is very much about helping people achieve a space between an experience and a response. Okay. Um, and it's about, I think also for me, what's been most significant in terms of my exposure to mindfulness has also been the big dimension of what's called self-compassion or self-kindness, maybe more informally. But the idea that we're often very judgmental of yeah. our experiences and our responses mindfulness and mindful self-compassion is about trying to quieten that judgmental voice yeah. and be more compassionate towards ourselves. And I think all of those things, so a vocabulary for emotional experiences, permission to feel how we feel, creating space between an experience and our behavioral or our verbal response, and being kinder to ourselves, each one of those things, I feel, has enormous benefits. Yeah, um, going back to the compassion part you were talking about, I feel that an immediate response, an automatic response that lots of us develop as soon as they feel um, an emotion such as sadness or anger, it's like, why am I feeling like this? Stop feeling like this. Mm -hmm. And they try to push it away. Mm -hmm. So are you kind of saying then that mindfulness is something that allows us to kind of sit with the emotion as opposed to trying to push it away straight away? Very much so. Oftentimes with mindfulness, there can be a mis misperception that it's about achieving this zen-like yeah. quality of floating through life where nothing, you know, nothing bad happens or you don't get, you know, don't respond emotionally. It actually couldn't be further from that, mm -hmm. but it's about going, yeah, this is my experience for now. And I think those two words are really, really powerful. So for now, um, the self-compassion literature based on the work of Christopher Germer and Kristen Ness is very interesting. And it, they identify three aspects. The first is mindfulness. So tuning into, well, I am sad right now um, or I am worried right now without minimizing that experience but also without amplifying it. Yeah. So it, it is what it is. And then the next stage, which is what you referred to, uh, it's in the literature, it's called um, common humanity. Okay. So 
oftentimes when we experience a difficult emotion, our natural reaction can be, why am I, why has this happened to me? I've done something wrong. All this bad stuff only ever happens to me. Everybody else has it sorted. Whereas the second step of a more self-compassionate response is being able to say, actually, we all feel this way from time to time. That's a very natural human response. So it's trying to connect with the bigger sense of, of the world and rather than feeling isolated and that we're the only person who gets things wrong, that, you know, sadness, anger, they're natural human experiences. Yeah. And then the third step is kindness, where you offer yourself the same type of kind or compassionate response that oftentimes we're very good at giving to our friends or our family members. Yeah. Um, but it's about extending that same kindness to ourselves. Yeah, it's um, that example of if you called one of your friends and said what you'd say to yourself, you'd be a terrible friend, but you think for it's sure. acceptable to say it to yourself. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but now when you talk about compassion and self-kindness and stuff like that, the one issue, of course, is when people hear that, they immediately think of cuddly toys and teddy bears, for example. There's a kind of stigma attached to it that um oh that wouldn't suit me i wouldn't like that type of stuff um in response to any people like that uh how would you respond to that yeah for sure i think um it's so interesting isn't it that the idea of kindness to oneself can evoke a a kind of touchy feely or an overly self-indulgent type of response I think we can look at the, the research findings which show that um, being more compassionate to ourselves is better for our mental health. It's better for, you know, how we achieve in the world. I think we can just look at what the rigorous, robust research tells us and um, try and change that misperception. Of course. Um, and then as well, so obviously we talked about mind me, mind you, and <laughs> sorry, I feel like um, I'm just constantly critiquing the uh, educational system. Um, do you feel the educational system is doing enough at the moment in relation to children's well-being and adolescents' well-being? Or could they be doing more? Again, sorry, I feel like <laughs> I'm just asking um, from an objective stance. I think there are many positive aspects to what's um, the focus of our educational system. I think last year, the Department of Education produced a well-being policy framework, which requires now schools to really focus on well-being um, in a very, in a very meaningful way. But I think you know, there are many challenges. Yeah. And not least the examination system, which, um, you know, doesn't lend itself naturally to well-being practices. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for individual students to um, do well in school as currently measured... And I hear it from my own occupational therapy students here in UCC, you know, to get the results that they want to get, many of them have to 
a feel they have to give up physical activity, give up hobbies, give yeah. up, you know, music lessons or being a member of a sports club in order to give the time to the exa- their exams. Um, so I think the exam system is extremely challenging for students, parents, teachers in schools. And I think, you know, until that can be revisited, um, that's going to place an ongoing challenge on well-being practices. Yeah. I think what's really good about the well-being policy framework is it looks at this idea of whole school approaches and providing support for all young people. Um, so that goes back to my ideas around, or not the ideas generally about health promotion and taking a, a more preventative approach. And then looking at, of course, there will always be young people who do require more support. Yeah. So we have supports for all, supports for some, and then a high level intensive support for the relatively small proportion of young people who have more significant um, moderate to severe difficulties um okay so when you talk about like obviously there there's of course always going to be children or adolescents who have difficulty for example with the routine of stuff that need extra attention what what do you think goes wrong there in relation to um why do children end up at the age of maybe they're doing the leaving cert and they don't have any routines in place so that they um they're nearly at a disadvantage because they have less chance of studying um what do you think is that does that start at a younger age or do you think it's partly genetic in relation to motivation or Mm. sorry i know that's a big question as well um i think in many cases young people do have good habits and practices in place but as i mentioned you know needing to achieve in the the senior cycle exam type situation which is very much concentrated on demonstrating learning through a single exam yeah um you know that doesn't really give young people an opportunity well it, it challenges their capacity i think to maintain habits so um i see it again you know with the young people i work here in college they have had to adapt their schedule so i i think maybe changes afoot i think the different approach to teaching and learning and assessment within junior cycle is um with more classroom based assessment is exciting Kay. and if we could extend that in a way that's fair and um gives young people the best opportunity to to learn to showcase their learning if we could extend that through the senior cycle um then maybe you know that that allows them to to flourish in a different way okay um so now i'm going to move a bit past um adolescents and speak about so um adolescence is now known up to 24 if i'm right in saying mm-hmm. A lot of students now coming out of college, they get their degree and some people would phrase it as going into the real world Mm -hmm. then. Um, It's a major stage for a lot of people of instability 
Um, any advice in relation to routine for that age group, from that 23, 24 age group? Mm. I think what's important with this newer definition of adolescence, which is from age 10 to 24, um, is that what's now known, what two things determine the kind of the, the closing stage of adolescence. One is that what the, the typical adult roles of um, gaining maybe permanent full-time employment or ending study and, you know, subsequently going on to, you know, getting married, all of these social roles of more yeah. associated with adulthood are happening much later. But also we know that um, the capacities of the brain in terms of the prefrontal cortex, which is located behind our forehead, that those capacities are continuing to develop right through to the mid-20s. So it's both the, the brain development and the new understanding that that's really ongoing through the mid-20s and the roles of employment and um, ending study and, and on, on to marriage happening later. Both of these things are part of the reason why this extended view of adolescence is being um, recommended. So I think, again, it's important that we educate young people that um, these capacities are still developing. Yeah. Um, I think we need to encourage people to have realistic expectations. I was just going to mention expectations. I think that's a big part to play. Yeah. Um, and and maybe it goes back to the self-compassion, you know, so having realistic expectations, knowing that it can often be an unsettling time where, you know, I often think our paths are pretty laid out for us and, you know, we go to primary school, we know we're going to go to secondary school. Many people know that they'll go on to college or do an apprenticeship or whatever and then it finishes and that can feel quite overwhelming and um, unsettling so i think the first thing is to know that those feelings are normal yeah um and i guess you know there's also a sense and it's a little bit um you know, we hear about it more and more this idea that um, people aren't going to have one career for the rest of their lives so maybe it's about, you know, encouraging young people um, to think about, well, what's what would I like to achieve within the next five years, for example? And yeah. not think a bit as, as in how am I going to get things sorted for the rest of my life? Interestingly, here in UCC, we're now thinking about how we as an organization can better support our students as they prepare to leave the university. So I'm involved with colleagues here in UCC now in a program which is looking at supporting our students as they transition into the university, through the university, and out of the university. Um, because we recognize that these, each of these transition stages has opportunities and potenti potentially also challenges. So this is part of um, UCC's Graduate Attributes Program. Okay. Um, but the bigger picture, I think, is is helping 
our students and our graduates to see that um, it's it's not not solely their degree or their qualification, but it's in many cases the transferable skills that they have developed okay. that they carry with them. Yeah. Um, so I think it's helping our students feel equipped mm. um, and resourced uh, and better able to deal with change. And, and we mentioned earlier that, yes, routine is important. Predictability is important. But also being able to be flexible is important. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I think it's just that thing, um, as you mentioned. So it's like you're nearly ticking the boxes of it's like primary school, secondary school, college, and then the next boxes to take or what like society expects you is to be married with a house and a car and money in the bank. Mm. And that little gap there, I think can be quite scary for people. For sure. Yeah. But yeah. adapt, as you mentioned, adapting to that change is the important aspect. Mm. Um, one last thing as well, I'm going to mention, um, I read in one of your posts for RTE, uh, you spoke about financial well-being in relation to sa- trying to save money. Do you think that's a general problem among adolescents and youths at the moment or? all of us um, trying to be responsible financially for ourselves um, is a challenge for most of us yeah um, for sure the cost of living rental um, the challenges of both finding rental accommodation and being able to pay for it mm. um, the challenges of getting mortgage approval um, juggling perhaps part-time work with college commitments um, all of these things are very real issues for for the majority of people in society I think and yeah you know um, again supporting young people to make wise decisions I think around their financial well-being is is very important. Yeah, and I I think it goes back again to routine. Like for example, um, creating a budget and um, sticking to that budget is very very important, as opposed to just um, there being complete variance in how you spend mm-hmm. and not planning ahead. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's really really important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So my final question: um, any interesting research coming up? that you're involved with at the moment um so i mentioned my colleague and friend dr yvonne nolan um and another colleague and friend dr samantha dockery in psychology so we're interested at the moment in um, looking at how we can um apply a developmental perspective so taking our shared understanding about brain and behavior development amongst adolescents, how we can apply that understanding to teaching and learning in higher education. Okay. So, for example, we have a seminar coming up next year um, called Connecting the Dots, so Developmental Opportunities in Transitions for Students, that's the D-O-T-S, funded by the National Forum. so that's one nice opportunity. We 
um, along with my occupational therapy colleagues here in UCC. We are also delivering a seminar on applying this public health model to occupational therapy provision in higher education. So thinking about how we might support all of our students to develop healthy habits and routines. Um, I'm involved in delivering a digital badge here in UCC at the moment a new digital badge called Everyday Matters, Healthy Habits for University Life. Um, so this is a, a new offering within UCC and um, I'll be evaluating that and hopefully um, publishing that in time. Amazing. Yeah, so some yeah. nice interesting projects underway. Um, I want to thank you so much for giving your time. Um, if people want to find you maybe online, how could they find you? So on Twitter, it's at my mind me mind you ie and my work email address here in ucc is e.hunt at ucc.ie okay perfect and i'll include all of that in the show notes as well thank you again i hope you enjoyed Very thank much. you thank you all right guys thanks again for listening that was uh christy's chat with ethna hunt really uh, interesting uh, really interesting um kind of guidance and advice from ethna so we really hope you enjoyed that um, as we discussed and as we mentioned back yesterday on our podcast, um, we will have uh, Paula Mee talking all about um, her book Mood Food and the Mediterranean diet and how that can be beneficial for your mental health. So um, just look after yourselves at this time. It's a difficult time for everyone. Take a check out on the WOW Challenge, which we talked about in yesterday's podcast to um, help you kind of build a routine and a healthy mind and healthy body while you're stuck inside and stuck at home. Um, and as we said, at a time of like this, it's important to mind yourselves.